It's been three years uh, since those uh, very darkest days of 2007 and 2009 uh, during the financial crisis. Since then, and this is often the case with um, very extreme economic events, we've seen considerable effort devoted to regulatory reform, uh, including, in this case, re legislative action, uh, improvements in supervisory processes and uh, methods, and international collaboration uh, aimed at improving uh, the regulatory environment. Uh, this first wave of remediation efforts um, I'd characterize as having yielded considerable progress. But I think we should be under no illusion that the steps, steps taken so far will prove durable and reliable as protection against future financial instability. My view is that without a robust program for repairing the fundamentally flawed relationship between government and the financial sector, the odds are quite high that before long we will face another episode of financial distress just as wrenching as the one we've just been through. Now you might wonder, legitimately, what remains to be done now that the economy is in recovery and we're well on our way to implementing the 2,319-page Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. The act, however, is a patchwork of provisions motivated by an array of conflicting crisis narratives and supplemented by an assortment of banking provisions largely unrelated and extraneous to the crisis. The law does some very good things and some arguably counterproductive things, but it leaves many things undone. With the financial crisis largely abated and at least on this side of the Atlantic, this strikes me as a good time for us to collectively step back reflect on what we've learned over the last several years and consider what steps to take next. Our path forward will be much more constructive if it's grounded in a reasonably coherent understanding of the trade-offs involved in financial stability po policy and in how the crisis came to pass. So in our time together tonight, I want to outline a broad agenda at a very high level for achieving a sustainable and effective relationship between the government and the financial sector. A program for financial stability, if you will. This program is based on what I believe is the most compelling assessment of the causes of the crisis, one that emphasizes the role of the financial safety net in weakening market discipline, and the role of ambiguity about that safety net in amplifying the effects of financial distress and inducing public sector rescues. I've discussed this assessment at length in other venues over the last four years, so I won't go into great depth about it. I'll say, though, at the outset here that while others have articulated similar perspectives, I should note that the views expressed are my own and do not necessarily represent the views of my colleagues within the Federal Reserve System. Our standard Federal Reserve disclaimer, some of you will recognize. So let me begin. Uh, with the observation that competitive markets in financial instruments, and here I would include everything from credit cards and other consumer loan products uh, to the complex derivatives that are widely used to reallocate risk among uh, large sophisticated financial market players, that competitive markets for financial instruments have de demonstrated an immense power to extract, aggregate, and disseminate the diverse 
individual assessments of various financial market participants about the economic fundamentals that underlie financial market transactions. This feature is generally very beneficial for us because that kind of aggregation of information is precisely how financial markets played their role in allocating resources to the most valued uses. As remarkably efficient as financial markets may be at, at processing disparate information, however, they perform this duty imperfectly, and it can sometimes make mistakes. Financial markets sometimes overshoot in the sense that prices or quantities can reach levels that with hindsight, and I emphasize with hindsight, appear to represent erroneous valuations. But identifying those mistakes in real time is exceedingly difficult. Since estimating the true value of a financial instrument is hard even for market mechanisms that embody the judgment of the many, it can be quite risky to rely instead on the judgment of just a few individuals, even well-trained, highly trained central bank staff, individuals who claim to know better that the market is wrong and that a financial instrument is worth something else. So my, my use of the word competitive here is vitally important, and I need to emphasize it, since competition is what allows many investors to have a voice in market process. Competitive markets give participants the incentive and the opportunity to use the information they have in the pursuit of individual gains. And this is the, this dynamic of competition between differently informed, different uh, different perspectives, um, is what is what drives the process by which individual information gets embodied into, amalgamated into uh, market prices. But this same dynamic means that competitive markets can also be ruthless in devising and proliferating ways to shift private risk to the government and thus to taxpayers. When a government guarantee program creates an opportunity to profit from taking risks that are to some extent borne by taxpayers, competition will generate a rush toward that opportunity, inflating the risks borne by taxpayers and depriving other sectors of the resources they deserve. Government guarantees for financial institutions have been particularly problematic for financial stability. Federal deposit insurance was established in the 1930s in response to the wave of bank failures that swept the country early in the Great Depression. But the banking problems of the 1930 were at least partially the result of the nation's fragmented banking system, which in turn was the result of legal restrictions on bank consolidation. Federal deposit insurance emerged as a political compromise that placed taxpayers behind the risks taken by small, poorly diversified banks, instead of allowing banks to diversify those risks through consolidation, as uh, happened in many other countries. The incentive problems associated with deposit insurance came to a head in the 1980s at a substantial cost to taxpayers, I might add, and led to reforms that stabilized the system, making it more sustainable. But alongside formal deposit insurance, there arose, beginning in the 1970s, the practice of using the Federal Reserve's independent balance sheet to provide financial support, fiscal support, really, for the uninsured liabilities of large financial institutions. This trend generated a pattern of assistance to financially distressed firms, like Penn Central in the early 70s, Franklin National in the mid-70s, uh, Continental Illinois in the mid-80s, 
the Bank of New York later in the 80s. The presumption of support for large financial institutions was further bolstered by repeated regulatory forbearance for large bank holding companies with exposures to emerging market debt in the 80s and 90s. The growth of government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, as implicitly protected institutions also contributed to this trend. I believe that the recent crisis was the culmination of a sequence of precedent-setting interventions that led the creditors of many large financial institutions to expect protection in the event of financial distress. This regime reached the point where federal guarantees, both implicit and explicit, now cover nearly 60% of the liability of U.S. financial firms. Let me say that again. If you take the liabilities of United States financial firms, our estimate is that at the end of 2009, 60% of those enjoyed either explicit or implicit backing of the federal government. As we learned from the savings and loan crisis in the 1980s, government guarantees are dangerous without limits on risk taking. The market discipline that's lost when insured creditors do not find themselves to be at risk must be replaced by official regulation and, and supervision. Otherwise, moral hazard will lead to excessive risk taking. As the recent crisis has made clear, however, the same incentive problems extend beyond explicitly insured depository institutions to include wide swaths of the financial sector that enjoy implicit guarantees. These are firms outside the formal banking sector, the so-called shadow banking sector. Such guarantees provide an artificial stimulus to leverage up, to take on concentrated risks, and to engage in maturity transformation. That is, funding illiquid uh, asset, longer-term assets, by issuing liquid short-term liabilities. All of which led to the overexpansion of the shadow banking system in, in the 90s and the in the, in the previous decade. Most of the financial market disruptions during this crisis originated in the shadow banking sector. Accordingly, much of the response by regulators and, and legislators has been in the form of strengthening prudential regulation for all manner of financial firms, especially those large enough to be considered systemically important and therefore more likely to receive support in a crisis. For instance, Regular forward-looking capital assessments or stress tests, a set of these was just concluded in the United States, provide a robust and transparent means of ensuring the adequacy of firms' capital buffers against adverse economic scenarios specified by regulators and given to the firms for analysis. The enhanced prudential standards mandated by Dodd-Frank have also usefully, in my view, strengthened the regulatory restraints on risk-taking particularly in the areas of capital requirements and liquidity management expectations. But it would be a grave error, in my opinion, to rely too heavily on our ability to, to offset the effects of implicit safety net guarantees through more strenuous regulation. Sooner or later, that approach is likely to fail. The more the centralized judgment of a small handful of officials, however well-informed or well-meaning, is, is substituted for, it re, is re, replaces the decentralized judgments of a multitude of financial market participants, the less resilient our system will become. 
we should work toward a financial system that is robust to large shocks and to the unavoidable errors of judgment made by individuals or single organizations. As an aside, I should note that I have the utmost respect and admiration for the men and women of our federal banking agencies who have worked and served really on the front lines uh, overseeing and evaluating the activities of large financial institutions. And I had first-hand contact with many of them during this crisis, the Richmond Fed. Many of them worked incredibly long hours and stressful hours for months at a time during the darkening days of 2007 to early 2009, only to find in the aftermath that their unique skills and experience necessitated continued demands on their time for the task of adapting prudential supervision to the new world order. To my knowledge, they've served with distinction and integrity in pursuit of an arduous and complex mission. End of aside. So, Instead of placing all our eggs in the basket of tighter regulation, my view is that we should place significantly greater reliance on the powerful decentralized forces of market discipline to constrain risk-taking at large financial institutions. This requires a credible restoration of the belief that financial firms' creditors will not benefit from public support in the event of financial distress. To do this, we must face the fact that authorities often view the unassisted resolution of a failing or illiquid financial firm as intolerable, despite the acknowledged likelihood that such assistance is going to erode market discipline and distort incentives going forward. Accordingly, one key strategy of a pursuit of financial stability is to make unassisted financial firm failures less disruptive and thus less aversive to policymakers. One task under such a strategy would be to critically re-examine the bankruptcy code from a post-crisis perspective, to look for ways to adapt it to the business of financial firms, particularly those firms that rely heavily on short-term funding to finance holdings of longer-term assets. In this context, some scholars, legal scholars I should say, have highlighted the fact that many short-term financing instruments and derivatives are exempt from bankruptcy's automatic stay. Such treatment is argued to have over-encouraged the use of such instruments and thereby enhanced the growth and fragility of the shadow banking sector. Thomas Jackson and David Skeel have proposed limiting this exemption as well as adding a new chapter to the bankruptcy code specifically adapted to large financial firms. And these reform proposals look quite promising to me and I think they deserve serious consideration. Another approach to making unassisted financial firm failures less intimidating would be to ensure that financial firms prepare credible and robust plans for their orderly wind down in the event of illiquidity or insolvency. People have been calling these living wills uh, and they were mandated by the Dodd-Frank Act. Regulators issued final rules for resolution plans on October 17, 2011 and expect to receive draft plans from the largest financial institutions by July 1st. Related, an international group of banking and financial supervisors and regulators is working to understand and address uh, the impediments involved in the resolution of large, complex, internationally active financial uh, institutions. Credible plans for liquidating a large, complicated financial firm may be hard to imagine, hard to picture. The legal and operational complexity of such firms 
may reflect a variety of, of practical motives, such as optimizing tax liabilities or managing regulatory jurisdictions or isolating legal liabilities. Uh, this must be the stock and trade of many of you in this room. There may be trade-offs between the benefits to the firm employing such strategies and the financial stability benefits, on the other hand, of more separable, easily manageable legal structures. If that's true, then I believe the ease of separability deserves a far higher priority in the design of the legal structures of large financial institutions, given what we've been through. Credible pre-existing plans for the orderly wind-down of a large financial institution would go a long way towards reducing the odds of public sector support that thwarts market discipline. I also believe that supervisory work on those plans by highlighting the implications of various organizational structures for the bankruptcy process can material assist, materially assist in efforts to understand how bankruptcy code might be improved as it applies to large financial firms. So a key characteristic of um, a regime that relies more heavily on market discipline would be a widespread belief that policymakers will not rescue the creditors of large failing financial institutions. Bankruptcy reform and sound resolution plans may not be enough, however, to allow authorities to credibly make that commitment to allow markets to work. Accordingly, a second strategy, I believe, for financial stability would be to constrain the public sector's ability to provide ad hoc support to firms uh, that are in financial distress. The Dodd-Frank Act included, usefully I think, some explicit constraints on the Fed's ability to provide extraordinary support by limiting our so-called so Section 13.3 um, authority to lend to non-depository institutions in, quote, unusual and exigent circumstances, unquote. Um, that was what was used in, in a couple of key cases in 2008. These restrictions do not go far enough, in my view. And I would favor further tightening restrictions on Federal Reserve lending by eliminating our Section 13.3 power entirely. This would be consistent with reducing the discretionary scope for inappropriate credit allocation by the Fed and thereby enhance the separation between monetary and fiscal policy in our country. Dodd-Frank, in its Title II, created something called an orderly liquidation authority under which the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation appears to have substantial discretion in the use of public support to aid creditors in the liquidation of a failing financial firm. This title, which otherwise closely parallels existing bankruptcy, bankruptcy law, undercuts the objective of greater financial stability by promoting uncertainty about when and where and in what circumstances public support might be forthcoming for the creditors of such large institutions. A third financial stability strategy is to look for places where regulatory or legal impediments prevent private sector arrangements that would reduce instability, arrangements that private sector might have an incentive itself to adopt if they were allowed to. Money market mutual funds, which benefited from substantial official support at the height of the crisis in 2008, appear to present such an opportunity. These funds have been allowed to use amortized cost accounting and fixed net asset values rather than marking mar assets to market as do other mutual funds. In exchange, their asset holdings are restricted to short-term financial instruments. This allows money funds to operate very much like bank accounts 
but without the overlay of banking and regulatory supervision. Indeed, money market mutual funds arose in the 1970s and became popular as a means of bypassing regulatory limits on bank deposit interest rates. The regulations also stimulate that if the value of a fund's assets fall below its promises to investors, that is, if they break the buck, then the fund must be liquidated. They don't have any choice. These two features combine to prevent funds from temporarily suspending full payment in the event of difficulty. That strategy has, for many institutions in many other settings, um, allowed them to staunch destabilizing runs. For example, in the era before deposit insurance in the United States, um, partial suspensions were the key to resolving banking panics. And in the recent crisis, many hedge funds were able to avoid instability and preserve value by delaying redemptions, gating, so-called gating, uh, they engaged in. Current regulations essentially prevent money market funds from structuring themselves in a way that reduces their fragility and their vulnerability to runs. So we should eliminate regulations like these, I believe, that keep intermediaries from reducing their vulnerability. So let me conclude by summarizing the program I've outlined for you. The first element, strengthening the prudential supervision of large financial institutions is well underway, though much important work remains to be done. This good work will fail to prevent financial market disruptions, however, without serious efforts to significantly increase our reliance on the disciplining force of competition to constrain inappropriate risk taking. We should critically re-examine bankruptcy law in light of recent events, looking for ways to improve its effectiveness for stressed financial firms and reassure policy authorities that it is a usable tool. We should take, very, uh, take a very rigorous approach to the Dodd-Frank provisions requiring credible failure resolution plans for large financial firms. And to improve the credibility of a commitment to greater market discipline, we should, take, we should further restrict the means available to authorities, including the Federal Reserve, to use public funds in a discretionary way to rescue private creditors. And we should remove any legal or regulatory impediments, such as those uh, for existing, such as the existing money market fund rules that prevent financial intermediaries from reducing their vulnerability to financial shocks. This program of enhancing the use of competitive market forces may take considerable time and effort to, to achieve. In particular, since actions often speak louder than words, commitment to market discipline might not be fully credible until the first instance in which authorities allow a large financial firm to fail without public assistance. But I believe the alternative of relying solely on regulation of ever-increasing reach and ever-increasing stringency will ultimately fail to provide adequate financial stability for our country. I believe the path to better financial stability lies instead in the direction of better use of market forces. Thank you very much for listening to my remarks. Is there time for questions? There, is, there appear to be time for questions. Paul? Uh, thank you for those remarks. Uh, could you talk about the role of the central bank as a lender of last resort to provide liquidity to the system as opposed to what you're talking about, which is withdrawing 13.3 or other 
kind of support. Where is that line? And if you can relate that to the crisis, which in some respects, many people have suggested was more a crisis of liquidity than it was of capital. It's a really good question. So. Um, the question, for those of you in the back who may not have heard it, um, is uh, about the, the, the so-called role of the central bank as a lender of last resort. So this phrase, lender of last resort, uh, provider of liquidity of last resort, um, is often invoked. Um, but um, it, it's ironic coming from uh, a man who, who is uh, associated with the clearinghouse, formerly the New York clearinghouse, uh, because as he well knows, before the founding of the Federal Reserve, uh, the, the liquidity, emergency liquidity assistance was provided by clearinghouses. And we were essentially founded as a way of democratizing um, access to clearinghouse liquidity. So um, in, uh, before the founding of the Fed in 1913, uh, and we were set up and began operating in 1914, um, there were clearinghouses in all the major cities, but country banks generally weren't members. and. Um, uh, banks had correspondent relations in which they had deposits in other banks that they used for clearing payments. And in a crisis, the clearinghouse, which had established membership requirements, knew the financial situation of its members, um, and regularly inspected and uh, examined, supervised, like bank supervisors do today, supervised their members to make sure they remained in sound position, would backstop their members uh, but in turn, their members would often uh, withhold withdrawals, not allow withdrawals by country banks that wanted to get their money out to meet uh, liquidity needs where they were. Well, the problem was that the money supply wasn't able to expand. The money supply consisted of notes that were printed by the U.S. Treasury and backed by, by U.S. Treasury securities and gold specie and coin. And these things, there, the, there was no government entity the government had a monopoly on money, but nobody was minding the store. Nobody in the government was expanding it to meet the increase in demand for money when the increase in demand for money increased. So the Bank of England in the 1800s um, began this practice of lending to banks as a way to expand the supply of money when the demand for money went up. and so. The founders of the Fed, naturally, the authors of the Federal Reserve Act, naturally looked to England for that model. Well, it wasn't about the lending. It was about the money. Lender of last resort isn't about taking on the credit risk of an individual institution. It's about increasing the supply of money when there's an increase in the demand for money. Nowadays, however, we have many means of doing that without taking on it positions in individual institutions. We can buy U.S. Treasury securities. There's a liquid market in them. There was not a liquid market in government securities in the 1800s or the 1900s. It never would have occurred to the founders of the Fed that the Fed would use open market purchases of securities to increase the money supply. We discovered that by chance in the 1920s, and it became dominant way of managing the money supply ever since. So I think the, the lender of last resort is something of a vestige of our historical origin as sort of nationalized clearinghouses, and I don't see it as essential to the provision of liquidity to the market as opposed to individual institutions. So my philosophy would be when the demand for money increases in a financial panic or in a situation of distress, we increase the supply of it. But we don't take a position by lending to an individual institution. We let 
market participants decide who they're willing to lend to in a crisis. Um, and I think that would be a far more effective way to draw a clear line between what the central bank does and what market participants um, ought to do. Yes, sir. Um, so the the question has to do with the European situation, and um, my questioner noted that some Spanish banks have bought some U.S. banks. I, I can't comment on you know individual portfolio decisions they've made. Um, so the European the Europeans are struggling with something we struggled with between 1790 and 1840s, uh, which is getting straight um, our monetary arrangements and our fiscal arrangements. Um, so we unified, we had a federal government, uh, we took on the state debts and unified the monetary system. So we formed a monetary union in 1790 um, after the Articles of Confederacy failed, um, and this was Alexander Hamilton's great contribution. Um, but we took on, as a as sort of a political price to pay, we took on the debts of the states, which were bankrupt, and paid them out of federal tax revenues. That was part of the deal. But then afterwards, there was this ambiguity. What are we going to do about the state debt if, if, if states get in trouble again? And we didn't settle that till the 1840s when states got in trouble and the, fe the federal government decided not to bail them out. That's the point at which many states put balanced budget clauses in their constitutions. Took a while, but they, they ended up regaining access after they repaid their debts to, to capital markets. Europe is struggling with what kind of fiscal union they're going to form, what the relationship is between the fiscal and different fiscal entities that make up the, the European Union. Um, I'm, I'm, they, they've sketched out a vision for where they're going. There are a lot of steps they've got to take to get there. Um, and I, I, th I think they've got a horse a course ahead of them, but they've got a lot of um, tough political negotiations and, and tough, um, uh, tough political votes, you know, um, discussions with voters to, to undertake to get there. Um, I think that the, you know, they're going through a recession right now. They've had a negative, some negative GDP growth last quarter, probably going to happen again this quarter. So far, uh, the effect on um, our economy has been uh, relatively uh, minor. Um, and, uh, you know, the best estimates going forward of how they're going to get through this and what this year's going to look like for them suggest it'll remain minor. Um, having said that, of course, there's always a risk of, of uh, a hiccup in the process, a speed bump in the process uh, that, that uh, leads to some uh, uncertainty, some pullback in spending that's broader uh, that we don't anticipate uh, that, that could pose a risk for us. But uh, so far for us, it seems manageable. Yes, sir. Could you comment on what happened in September 2008 in terms of monetary policy? Whether you feel that that was a little bit timid in terms of using open market purchases to expand the money supply at that point? Um, so in September 2008, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the, the economy began weakening. So the the recession began at the very beginning of 2008, and in January of 2008, we cut interest rates pretty dramatically, 75 basis points in one meeting, I think it was. And uh, we, we kept cutting. We paused for a little while. Inflation got high in the early 2008 period. 
But then going into the fall, it was clear things were weakening. Um, but um, the, the events of the fall, you were sort of preoccupied with individual institutions rather than cutting rates. We got down pretty close to zero pretty rapidly in September and October. Um, the supply of money increased very rapidly, um, but it was m more or less a an automatic byproduct of um, the credit market intervention we were doing, the lending we were doing to individual institutions. Up to that point, we had sterilized our lending. Um, and so when we sterilized lending, so like Bear Stearns in March of 2008, we lend $30 billion, uh, to help fund the acquisition of Bear Stearns by J.P. Morgan Chase to this special purpose vehicle. We sold $30 billion of U.S. Treasury securities to the public to make room on our portfolio, because if we didn't, the expansion in the money supply that resulted would drive down interest rates, and at that point, interest rates weren't at zero. When they got down to zero in, in October, it, it sort of didn't matter anymore uh, whether we drove interest rates down. So we, we stopped sterilizing and we started increasing the money supply fairly dramatically. I think we did, I think that expansion of the money supply was warranted. I think it was a good thing. I think the fact that inflation is pretty much averaged about 2% um, since then is, is a sign that, that it hasn't been an inflationary force so far. Uh, so I'd give us pretty good marks on that score. Whether we had to lend all that money to do it, or whether we could have done it by buying treasuries is another question. Yes? I wanted to ask you about your proposed changes to the bankruptcy code, and just using Lehman Brothers as an example of a financial institution that's been in bankruptcy, liquidating for over three years now, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars in legal and professional fees. How can we make the process better for large financial institutions? Well, you know, I understand uh, the point of view that, that the large, um, uh, fees paid to lawyers in bankruptcy are a, a cost, a deadweight cost to society and a bad thing. But I won't explore that view any further here tonight. Um, but, you know, I, I, bankruptcies happen and it takes a while to settle things out, to, you know, to unwind, um, to unwind everything, to sort everything out. And so, you, you know, it's, it, it, it builds in this procedural fairness, it wrestles with this common pool problem and it's got all these mechanisms we've sort of devised and that have evolved over the years to solve various problems and try and get to the right answer as quickly as possible. Um, from a financial stability point of view, the question is, um, you know, was it disruptive? What were there knock-on effects um, to other financial institutions or other financial markets that were terribly disruptive? Um, so. In, in Lehman's case, you can argue that it was um, uh, minimal, uh, with one exception. So uh, the one exception is that one uh, money market mutual fund broke the buck, uh, reserve fund. It had more Lehman than it sort of was letting on to people that it had, and it, it ended up um, paying less than um, a dollar, and it announced that shortly into there, and then there was Another fund announced that it was winding down its fund uh, rather than allow withdrawals. And there was, a, there was a flight out of money market mutual funds that held private paper to money market mutual funds that held government, only U.S. Treasury securities. But that flight had this artificial stimulus to it. So that was like the one downside. That was the one adverse 
consequence of Lehman, uh, I think, that you could identify from a, that's relevant from a financial stability point of view. But that was all, that whole flight was turbocharged by this problem I mentioned. See, because if, if, um, if everyone's selling commercial paper, and, and you, and, but you put in your request today, you get, you get the amortized cost value out. You don't, you, you can stick, if you withdraw now, you can stick losses to other money fund shareholders who wait. So you have this artificial built-in regulatory mandated incentive to run. It, it's, it's, just built, it's just built in instability. Um, and that's, that, was, that was the reason why, and you can see because it was all institutional money that, got, that shifted. The retail money didn't shift um, very much at all, materially at all. So I, I, I don't think you should, I, think, I don't think you should count what happened in money market mutual funds against Lehman per se. I think there was a problem, there was a structural problem in the money market mutual fund industry. So there was this one institution that had this problem, this break the buck problem. And I think otherwise, uh, you know, people I've talked to suggest that, um, I mean, I haven't read a thorough ex post study of this, but suggest that Lehman has been a pretty orderly bankruptcy. I mean, they sold the broker dealer in five days, uh, which was sort of pretty astounding as bankruptcy goes. So. Um, you know, I'm perfectly willing to be enlightened by future scholarship on this, but so far it looks like Lehman was a, a manageable uh, resolution. Other questions? Well, thank you very much.